0: Hey, everyone, we just launched a new show called Request for Startups. In the first season, we've got a rotating lineup of tech founders and investors joining me to share their requests for startups they want to exist in the world and also share their stories of navigating the idea maze in different sectors so founders don't have to reinvent the wheel anymore. The first episode is out now. We cover better dating apps, references as a service, and we work for productivity. Listen first, then build. Video episodes of the show are on our substack. You'll find a link in the description.
1: Podcasting has incredible strengths and incredible weaknesses as a medium. The strengths are that you have a deeper level of relationship with the audience that feels more personal and leads to more retention, I would say, than almost any other medium. I think of different mediums as having kind of natural sort of like Dunbar numbers of like how many different channels do you regularly frequent? And can you like kind of hold in your head as at once as like, a yeah, here's like what's in my rotation. I'm on a whole bunch of different sites all the time. And maybe newsletters is like smaller because I'm actually inviting them into my inbox, but it's pretty easy to skim. It's pretty easy to just archive something if it's not for me. And then video is kind of similar where it's like, there's just tons. Cause like YouTube will show me a million different channels and I'm searching for whatever random thing. And there's some new channel, but it, I've never heard of, but it has a video on the topic that I wanted. So I've got the information, but podcasts, it's not like YouTube where people use it to like search, ba- like there's almost no search driven podcast listening because you can't skim it. Video, you can skim a little bit more easily. It's like less easy to skim than text. There's like way less obvious signals of quality externally, whereas podcasts, it's like there's no information on like how popular a given episode is or a given show is. There's some, but it's like very indirect and hard to find. So all you can really go on are like pre-existing trust signals. Like someone told me that this was great.
0: Welcome to Media Empires, where we sit down with the most influential media creators right now to learn exactly how they built their empires. Our aim is to extract the secrets of top-tier podcasters, newsletter authors, and media creators who are breaking the old rules for media success. Whether you're looking to start your own empires or simply curious about the nuts and bolts behind media businesses, you'll find valuable insights and tactics in each episode. Grab your headphones and let's dive in. This week on Media Empires, we're sharing an interview I did with Nathan Bashes. We discussed the strengths and weaknesses of podcasting versus video content and newsletters plus growth and monetization strategies within those realms. We also dive into Nathan's work with Every EveryInk, as well as Lex, an AI-powered writing tool that's built to revolutionize the writing process. Since its launch in 2022, they've raised a $2.75 million seed root led by True Ventures. Without further ado, here's Nathan. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So we obviously go way, way back in that you helped build the initial version of Product Hunt and i've seen yeah. you, you from product hunt to general assembly through through substack through every maybe maybe some other things in, in between there you're part of early on, on that community as well we go back before that i don't know if you remember
1: but the first time we met it was at a hackathon probably one that our friend dave Fontenot created and you were like freestyle rapping yes. in <laughs> front of the nerdiest group of people <laughs> to ever hear a live freestyle rap and it was, an, it, was it was a really good time yes. I mean, that was my first impression of you eric tornberg
0: yes wow I got to see you a little bit in between your time between Substack and Every. And I want you to take us back through the idea maze of how you, one, got excited about just kind of like the future of publishing. And then there are a number of things you you could have pursued that you did explore the Substack path and worked there for a bit as a leading product. How did you land on Every as the the model? And then I'm curious, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, well, there's kind of two pieces. So one
1: was when I was at Substack, I just observed how hard it was to make the model work if you didn't already have a big audience, right? And back then we didn't have any of the stuff they have now where there's like the network, right? Where you can, if you write something and you catch the attention of other writers, they can sort of build ways to recommend you to their to their audience. And then you can grow really quickly through some of that stuff now. But back in the day, we didn't have any of that. And I just noticed it, it means so much to have distribution, right? And like being able to tweet a link is not distribution. That's just, that's still your own distribution. And so there has to be ways for people to get in front of readers because there's way more people who are capable of writing great things that would inform, entertain, inspire, whatever, than there are people with big audiences. And so that was kind of in the back of my head. Another thing in the back of my head when I was at Substack is just thinking about bundling and that there's a lot of writing that is worth something to me, but maybe not the market clearing standalone subscription price like if i'm the writer i want to charge maybe 10 bucks a month and that that's what's going to make me the most money but if i'm a reader maybe i like it a little bit i might i might i'm aware of it i might be willing to pay like 3 bucks a month for it but like not 10 so i just don't get access to it and they don't get my $3 but bundling is a way to kind of make that work where if you have people with different preferences some people might be willing to pay even more like 15 bucks they get sort of a bargain for getting it for 10 other people they wouldn't have bought standalone but it kind of averages out and then you create like really a huge amount of like cons- consumer surplus from bundling when you can make it work of course the difficulty is you got to convince writers to sort of like join together so one reason to join together might be having a lot of distribution to an audience right so those, those are some of the things I was kind of thinking about. And then I started talking to this really good friend of mine, Dan Shipper. He was separately kind of getting interested in newsletters and just thought there's space for much higher quality commentary and analysis about a bunch of different industries and in business. And so we decided, hey, let's start, well, let's try the bundle thing. We'll we'll just start writing ourselves and and eventually you know if we end up making some money on this on a standalone basis we can bundle ourselves together kind of as like the the initial core unit of the bundle and we can start just with what we know which is tech and then just branch out from there as we find more writers and so basically that's been that's been the original vision of every and it is really carried through since then if there's one big thing in the idea maze that i would say we anticipated but maybe underestimated how difficult it would be it's just the Venn diagram of people who have knowledge that that makes them sort of credible to write about some industry or, or or job function or whatever within within a field of business. And then the people who have the desire to write and the skill to write, and not just as a one-off, but like on a regular basis, right? It's extremely hard. That's why most of the business content that exists that comes from like professional media organizations. Is breaking news because journalism, that's a whole skill set, that's a whole career path. It's one thing to sort of cultivate sources and say, hey, we discovered this thing happened and it's it's important and everybody obviously wants to know about it. Totally different model to try and get people to have smart analysis and commentary and opinion about the news. And it's just rare to find people who basically want to be like Ben Thompson, right? Because you know, the alternative is who knows what job Ben Thompson would have. Maybe, maybe he's like an exec somewhere or like started a company, and a lot of the people who like like in sports, the, the best commentators and analysts are like people who kind of like aged out physically, you know, but in business, you don't really have the same phenomenon. So it's just been, it's fascinating to sort of like grow every overtime and, and watch kind of like the, the supply evolve. But that's like the basic, I don't know, lay of the land of some of the idea-made stuff that, that we've been navigating.
0: That's fascinating. Thanks for that overview. If, if you knew then what you knew now, what might have you have done differently?
1: Great question. Well, one thing is, so we made a shift at some point a year or two into the business where we realized that we should really focus and consolidate our efforts on like a very narrow audience. I think we sort of out of the gate aspired to be kind of like the athletic for business, right? Where it's like, all right, what are all the industries? Make a map of them and we'll find like a person for each industry. And what we realized is when you do it that way, you don't really experience any of the power of like a bundle and building distribution and all that kind of stuff. So all the forces that might want to keep people together don't really exist yet. Whereas when we wanted to get other people to write about the stuff that we had built our personal audiences around, I mean, that worked really well. I could like publish a guest post that I personally knew was good and the audience would love it. And it would like it. that worked every time it's hard to find those posts, right? But it was, it was a lot easier than starting from scratch on like, I don't know, the cannabis industry, like who knows if our audience cares, right? So that was one thing. And if I could do anything differently, I would just have learned that lesson faster, <laughs> I guess. And another facet of that is just like personalization. Spent a while working on kind of a system to, to have each subscriber get like a personalized queue of posts, right? So think almost like, a TikTok style thing where it drips out one email a day and it learns from if you liked it or not, like what kind of stuff to send you. And we can use other signals like what post was the one that you visited right before you signed up or whatever. And I think we quickly learned like most personalization for us didn't matter because we weren't really covering like a super diverse set of topics. It was just like tech was what was resonating and specifically like tech Twitter type topics. So we realized that like, just picking the greatest hits performed better than, than personalization. So really like going from this kind of long-term vision to much more focus on, well, like what's the best starting point, which looks much more like a, a solitary newsletter or like a magazine, right? Like a traditional magazine where it's like everyone gets the same thing basically. And you build one audience around that. And I still think in the long run, we can do a lot of that stuff. But like, we haven't earned the right to start doing that yet. The classic thing is like, get your sort of, if, you, if you're trying to like build in a way, it's like a two-sided marketplace, right? There's supply, there's writers, and then there's demand, there's readers. And so you'd rather start like in San Francisco, or like if you're DoorDash, like in Atherton or whatever, and get it working really well, right? Get the liquidity going of like supply and demand, meeting each other and and finding matches there that they can't find anywhere else, and and having a better experience, and then you can go to other markets and verticals. And so I think it's it's a difficult lesson for a lot of entrepreneurs to sort of like constrain themselves, you know, and to be seemingly less ambitious in a way, but it's like, go slow in order to go fast or start small in order to get big is just super important advice.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense um, in terms of the focusing on, wh- on wh- where your strengths are and building off that. I'm curious what you think about the industry dive model of building these kind of, th- they do publications, but you can imagine if it was built today, it'd be be newsletters for for industries that don't have a lot of great coverage, perhaps. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the cannabis industry. I don't know if that's one that they would cover, but yeah, they, they do things like food and utilities and waste and HR. I see Workweek is trying to position themselves as like a creator-led industry dive, but it's, yep. it's kind of like B2B trade media in, in some sense. I'm curious if you explored that path and what, what you think about
1: it. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, that that's definitely the path we explored and we just found way more attraction. It felt like all our incentives were pulling us towards having one industry and being really good at it. That's kind of what we found. Because again, it's like you can go recruit A writer and like pay them a salary and get them to write some stuff about an industry really hard to get that to the point where it's profitable and a lot of people in that industry like read it and rely on it and you can sell enough subscriptions or advertisements to like break even either that writer needs to already have the distribution in which case how strong is your value proposition really and like Aren't they just going to go on Substack, or you somehow have the distribution? But then the question is, how? What do you do? And it's just—it's hard to get that unless you buy it, right? Which you can spend a lot of money on on marketing to grow, to acquire a whole bunch of emails in a specific industry that then you hire a writer for. But it just feels kind of like a bank shot because these things are so much built on, like the content that people actually return to over time is built on trust, right? And especially if it's an industry that you don't have a lot of familiarity with. Like finding a content creator, paying them a salary, paying a bunch of money to acquire a bunch of readers. It's like, hope that works out. (laughs) It might, it could potentially, but it's like a relatively capital intensive and kind of like risky bet that there's not a lot of leverage. Like there's not a lot of leverage in that system. You're just kind of like using cash. Whereas when we stayed focused on our core topics, it's like, well, we know what's going to resonate with our audience. The trust layer is us, right? Like as editors, basically, as curators of what to publish and who to publish. There's way more incentive for the writer to want to work with us because they get distribution to an audience and they get to benefit from the trust that the readers already have in us. And so we just found that works super well. There's way more leverage there. And it's sort of like going with the grain of where, where the sort of like market incentives are pulling us. So it just feels like sort of an easier road. That being said, nothing against the industry dive or the Workweek model. I'm sure that the industry dive folks or Adam from Workweek could tell you all about exactly how they make it work. This is more just sort of what we discovered being in the market and kind of feeling
0: where the pull was. Yeah, and even within your the, the tech market, how do you think about like B2C versus B2B?
1: It's so fascinating because it's like really hard to tell the difference, right? Essentially, people read every to help them at some level in their career, right? Their our most popular content right now is all about AI. Is that B2B like kind of? The way I think about it is tech is like for a lot of people, kind of like a sport. If you're a fan of like soccer, there's like developments, there's personalities, there's talent, there's championships, there's all the things that you might want to cover and talk about. And tech is like this sort of participatory sport where There's like everyone from the kind of like local like dads after work like soccer team thing or whatever that's like your startup to like giant companies, and it's this kind of you can't find like a point on the line where it starts stops being a hobby and like starts being a profession or an industry thing or a work thing. At the end of the day, people read it because they're fascinated by it and they like it and they think that it holds some opportunity for them, like this industry. So I think it in just terms of what kind of behavior are we tapping into it feels more consumery in a way to me but at the same time there's economic stakes to it it's related to your career and your profession but this is one of those kind of it's like a newsletter about Hollywood kind of like same deal right like there's a lot of aspiring actors that like might want to read about like acting and how to break in and all that kind of stuff yeah T- tech, it's got kind of like a similar thing to it you know
0: totally a- another way of phrasing it is just who pays is, is yeah. the person or the business. And I've always been impressed by how the information was able to get so many businesses subscribed. And you can imagine something that's information. My understanding of the value prop is like, stay informed on what's what's happening in your space or, or the business and it, Wall Street Journal for tech. Whereas you can yeah. imagine something that was more trade specific. That's like, Hey, this is for your company to get better at their job or something like that would even be even more of a sell in theory. So that that's one way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think there's a whole sort of like, whatever, go to market motion that we could probably do and probably will do at some point. That's like, okay, there's like, a, look at our email list, which are the email addresses that are like companies? And like, can we email them and say like, hey, like, are you interested in like a company subscription plan? And like, you got a landing page with all the like, value propositions spelled out, right? For like, why you would want to get access for your whole team. And it's very professional oriented. The information I'm sure does that, and for us already, a decent chunk of people put it on their company card. But I, I think probably more than half just pay for it personally. But it's like the way that you pay for a business book—like you're—it's—it's it's this blurry line,
0: right? Yeah, it's at the intersection. Shifting gears a bit, I'm curious how you think about podcasting. I, I know that you guys have have done a couple podcasts. I'm curious if you've explored it seriously as like a a business unit. And I'm, I'm curious, because one idea I'm exploring is kind of the industry dive, but like podcast centric. Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't know how to compare, like newsletter seems like a very straightforward business, you either get a lot of subscribers, or you don't. And there are other ways of monetizing, of course, And there is a big debate about subscription versus ad we'll, we'll get into. But podcasting seems not as straightforward, unclear how it gets really big, you don't have first party data. And so I'm curious how, how you how you think about that. And What you would advise people who are exploring maybe podcast networks around niche topics?
1: Yeah, podcasting has incredible strengths uh, and incredible weaknesses as a medium. The strengths are that you have a deeper level of relationship with the audience that feels more personal and leads to more retention, I would say, than almost any other medium. Maybe YouTube has some similar qualities, but I think of different mediums as having kind of natural sort of like Dunbar numbers of like how many different channels do you regularly frequent? And can you like kind of hold in your head as at once as like, a yeah, here's like what's in my rotation. And like what's in my rotation of web pages is just tons, right? Like Hacker News sends me everywhere. Twitter sends me everywhere. Like I'm, I'm on a whole bunch of different sites all the time. And Maybe newsletters is like smaller because I'm actually inviting them into my inbox, but it's kind of large because it's pretty easy to skim. It's pretty easy to just archive something if it's not for me. And then video is kind of similar where it's like there's just tons because like YouTube will show me a million different channels and I'm searching for whatever random thing and there's some new channel but I've never heard of, but it has a video on the topic that I wanted. So I've got the information. But podcasts, it's not like YouTube where people use it to like search. Like there's almost no search driven podcast listening Some probably, but it's very, very small because you can't skim it. Video, you can skim a little bit more easily. It's like less easy to skim than text, but there's like way less obvious signals of quality externally. Like even on video, like if you're on YouTube, you can kind of like glance at the like thumbnails as they progress and kind of just get a sense of like how professional it is overall or not. And you can see like how many views it has. And so it's sort of enough to tell you, hey, is this basically on the topic that I wanted? And does it basically look good? Whereas podcasts, it's like, Basically, there's no information on like how popular a given episode is or a given show is. There's some, but it's like very indirect and hard to find. So what do you go on? Like cover art? Well, it's pretty cheap to have like good looking cover art. So all you can really go on are like pre existing trust signals. Like someone told me that this was great. So I have to try it out. Or I keep hearing about it. And it just sort of is in the air. And it's really hard to sort of get yourself in that rotation. But once you do, once you're in somebody's rotation, because it's so hard for new things to break through it's like incredibly sticky so i think audio podcast specifically have like the, has like the lowest dunbar number of any of any medium so the whole challenge is around just sort of like how do you, how do you break through and most shows do it one of two ways either it's an interview show and so the guests have like an audience and credibility that kind of like brings people in and breaks the trust barrier because it's like oh cool this person i'm a fan of tweeted it and I found out about it and I wanted to listen to that interview for whatever reason. And so I did. And then now I like the host maybe and I listen to the rest of the stuff or I see a few other guests that I like too. So I'm like, okay, this is in my world. This is good. The other way is for the host themselves to be the personality, right? So if it's like someone I've been following for a really long time and now they're launching a podcast, like I'm in, right? So it's, it's really good. It's really good at that sort of like mid funnel or bottom of funnel type universe of like people in your audience. But very hard to grow Top of Funnel 4 on its own. And, and at every, we've typically found like it's way easier to acquire readers and to grow just by publishing text and having it either get shared around on Twitter or forwarded to people in emails or get on Hacker News much easier than, than podcasts. So that's why we invested a lot more. We, we've done podcasts, but like it's always been relatively feeling like harder to grow them. So I don't have like a lot of great answers of like, here's exactly the tactic or, or, of how to do it it is a little bit of a mystery to me in some ways, but I do think the pattern is typically like it's really focused and it's got people I've heard of and, and and either the person I've heard of is like the host or the guest and beyond that, it's kind of like, I don't know, you can like promote it through like spending money or whatever, but usually that's not a super efficient way to grow. So yeah, I'm definitely not the expert on podcast growth. This is more just like, why I have found text to be easier to grow.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a helpful overview. And, and for the same reasons that podcast is hard, there, there's limited search, so it's harder to break out. I've been curious about YouTube. And I, I think we're starting to see a little bit of like influencer YouTube for like B2B categories. Like I yeah. I saw there was this big like dentist, right? He was talking about dental dentist or like a personal injury lawyer. Like basically I wonder if there will be an industry dive-esque or workweek-esque that's kind of like a YouTube first. Or, or Oh, totally. Yeah. What do you think about this?
1: I think this is a great idea. I mean, honestly, like I've, I spent a lot of time on random, very random corners of YouTube. Like I, one time I was interested in like, I don't remember why, but like real estate and like home buying and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to learn about it a little bit. And I, I found out about realtor Twitter, like, or not Twitter, YouTube, like realtor YouTube, like people who are real estate agents creating YouTube videos for other real estate agents about how to like <laughs> close more buyers or or sellers or whatever and do more deals. And, um, it's incredible what you can learn when you hear, like, if you're on the other end of the transaction as like a buyer or a seller, hearing what they tell each other of how to do their job (laughs) is like the best way to know the ins and outs. And like, you you already understand all the jargon language, the tricks they are pulling on you. (laughs) Like, it's great. (laughs) I also found like, I I related to that because we bought a home. I was like doing, doing some really lightweight work on the house or whatever. Like I painted the cabinets and there's like, videos that are three hours long about how to paint cabinets. They're like, not like home HGTV, like DIY fun video. It's like in-depth content for, (laughs) it felt like I was watching a programming tutorial of like someone like two hours, like how to create a react app or whatever, you know, like it was like technical basically. And it it was incredible. So yeah, I 100% believe that there's going to be, and there already is long tail niche industry content on YouTube the main reason why I search, I think also just because video in general is a great medium for a lot of things. The question of whether there's a network, right. That owns that. And what kind of content is it? Is it like very visual or is it more like conversational? Like it's a video podcast, a lot of open questions there, but yeah, I, I think that's a big force for sure.
0: Yeah. In the same way that industry dive or morning brew or whatever companies are really getting big brand dollars. Yeah, Will there be networks on YouTube that are able to get similar kind of advertising deals? Yeah. I'm curious how you think about financing of creators, whether it's it's newsletter writers or podcasters, YouTubers, like I know yeah. Substack explored this with the Matt Iglesias like deals, the number of them. Uh, I imagine they did pretty well in those deals. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, I'm curious. Do you think that's a model that will work? And is that something you've, you've explored?
1: Yeah, definitely. I definitely think it's a model that'll work. That was like sort of a big thing when I was at Substack. This was the very early days. I was like the first employee there, and it was at the point where we we're still talking about if we had product market fit. Which, if you're talking about it, you like maybe you do, but probably not quite yet. <laughs> and the theory was like we just don't have a good enough offer to get a certain type of writer who's going to like instantly do really well financially because they're established enough. We just don't have a good enough offer because what they're used to dealing with is like talent agents, like literary agents talking to publishers or talking to magazine media companies, whatever, and getting offered like some cash to do a thing, right? This was after I left, but basically when Substack like raised more money, they started doing these deals where they would, you know, it felt like a very legit thing. It built a lot of credibility and it unstuck a lot of people to go all in on their Substack by de-risking it for them. Right. And so it, we didn't have to craft the exact same kind of deal that you would, if you're a book publisher or whatever else, it made much more sense for sort of like the, the sub stack model. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a huge thing. I do think it's sort of like any business that's a creator business is really like a talent business, you know? And so it's not like a consumer app, the way that you acquire users. There will be some users who just sort of organically emerge on the platform and do really well, but you end up acquiring more of those if you also get people who have already been successful, as long as they are actually committed to doing your thing. Like if you have some brand, like if you're if you're TikTok and you like do deals with movie stars, like it's not going to work because TikToks are not movies. And so for them, it makes much more sense to rely on more of this sort of like organic creator figuring out the new medium. But for Substack, like... Th- People are just doing what they always did. They're writing. They're writing essays, basically, and they're they're putting them in your email and they're owning a relationship directly rather than sending them to an editor and getting it printed somewhere, right? But it works really well for like columnists, basically, because because they're just doing what they've always done. They're practicing their same craft. They're just sort of taking their talents to substack rather than rather than selling it to a media company. So yeah, I, th- I think having having sort of creator deals makes perfect sense. And then the question is sort of my understanding is that Substack and, and, and a lot of other companies that are similar have slowed down on that kind of thing. And I think that's basically just because there was a moment when capital seemed really cheap and it was really cheap. And then now it's not, <laughs> and everyone has to be a lot more conservative. And these companies are also, they've gotten past like the, the hump that that helped them get past. Like when you don't have a lot of big name writers, it helps to like unstick a lot of the first ones. And then once you've already unstuck them, you don't have to do as much to get the next ones and the next ones, right? So they've already sort of got the flywheel turning and they can ride on that momentum without having to spend as much cash, which is, you know, obviously a riskier thing to do today than it was a year and a half ago or whatever. So yeah, I think I think they're great, but you gotta be careful about it. And the other thing I'll see on it is it matters a lot the exact way that you structure it. It has to be... The kind of deal where when you make a bet, you can make like more than your money back because you're gonna bet on some that don't pan out. So it's it has venture-esque return profiles. And I, I don't wanna say venture, it's just it's risky, right? So, <laughs> so um so so you you have to be able to have your winners pay for your losers, basically.
0: Yeah. One thing I'm interested there in just creator financing is like if it's if it, it'll potentially open up not just to the sub stacks of the world, of like faceless record labels. I love Substack, I don't I don't mean that in a diminutive way, but I mean it is like, will it also open up to the public? Like could there yeah. be like an angel investing where I could invest in your Substack or I could invest in 15 Substacks and like venture, one of them would pay for all the others. But I, I think the only way that makes sense is if it's almost like a 360 deal. Maybe newsletter writer, you're more aligned because like yeah, yeah. whereas like a YouTuber it's unclear that we're monetizing in different ways. But Slow is experimenting where they're giving, uh, Slow Ventures, giving $1 million to YouTubers for like 5% of everything they make for the next 30 years or yeah. something. And I, I suspect that model is going to be pretty controversial. And I don't know how well it's going to scale relative to like more of a clear bank for YouTube, yeah, yeah, yeah. like a loan, basically. Yeah. And similarly, I guess like you front the money, or like could I angel invest someone's sub stack and do I get 5% of it forever or, or whatever my percent is forever or... I'm just curious, like, will it open up? What's exciting to me about it, if it opens up, it means that there's all this capital flooding in. And if there's all this capital flooding in, that means that there could be more writers. Like, I was also excited by the pre-subscribe thing. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of like, if you leave your job, you have this capital that's, like, de-risked it for you, or this investment. That's, yeah, totally. Th- this should be that for for startups, too, by the way. Like, a page with, like, prospective employees at yeah. companies. Like, if they leave this company to start something, I'll back and you, you kind of have that informally, like and VCs will do that. Yeah. But I'm I'm curious if you could formalize within tech, but even with other with other categories, it once you introduce this like investing kind of ecosystem, then there's just more of it.
1: Yeah, totally. I think the tricky thing about it is basically making sure that there's an easy, clear way to sort of account for like because these things they don't really have exits in the same way, right? So if you're doing some sort of like profit share over time or revenue share over time. It's like, well, what are all your sources of revenue and how do you report them? All this kind of stuff. And it's, it's kind of tough. I can imagine the slow version of it working because it's like a large amount of money on maybe a smaller amount of people. And so you're, you're placing bigger, sort of more concentrated bets and you can sort of afford the transaction costs of like maintaining those arrangements over time, the idea of doing it as sort of like a crowd level or having it try and be a very like frictionless, low transaction cost thing is tough. I think that's why it makes a lot of sense for the platforms to be the arbiter of this, the people who sort of pay out the money because Substack doesn't have to ask you how much money you're making. And and so I think I think the platforms are probably in a, in a little bit of a better position to do advances or other kinds of deals like that. I know YouTube has done some stuff like that and lots of people... Snap has like the sort of spotlight, I think is what they called it, where they would do like a million dollars a day to people who created good content. Some of it's just kind of like a prize, you know, it's like a lottery almost, yeah. or like somewhere between a lottery and a competition. But it's, I think, I think there's an increase, there's going to be an increasing professionalization of the structures that produce media sort of native to the internet versus media companies that use the internet to distribute their content. And it's, a real, it's going to become an increasingly blurry line. And the whole the whole meme from like, I don't remember when it was, but like the whole idea of a platisher, you know, the medium, like we're a publisher, but we're also a platform. It was like a joke kind of, but I think it's real. Like I think that over time, those, those lines are going to really blur because there's some controversy about this with Substack. It's true. If you're betting on someone, if you're financing them, you really are kind of publishing them. Like it's a different relationship than if someone signs up for some software that you really had nothing to do with them. So it'll be interesting to see sort of how it evolves. But my expectation, the way the, at the sort of biggest picture, the way I model it in my head is like the internet comes along and there's like native creation happening organically on the internet. And it's this whole ecosystem that's growing more and more sophisticated over time. And it's sort of moving up market. And it's like not not just as any individual thing, but like the whole ecosystem is moving up market to like compete with different traditional Entertainment and information industries, and so the the end products get more and more sophisticated. They're they're capable of handling more and more investment. There are some things like movies or like AAA video games, like those don't get organized natively on the internet. They're still they go through the same old kind of like publisher system, even if the end product gets distributed over the internet. But if you you could think of it like forums and blogs and stuff, and then Substacks like kind of getting a little bit more professional. And like what happens when movies maybe get made? more organically and people just post it you know <laughs> like everything is posting in the future it, it, it's sort of academic but i think it's kind of an interesting way to model things because so far i feel like it's proving correct that the thing we used to call social media that was just like people communicating actually it has split into more of a two sided marketplace of like people who specialize in creating things that entertain and inform and then audiences and and it's kind of separating itself a little bit more from just like free for all communication where everyone's
0: kind of like at the same level yeah, that, that's a really interesting model. Thanks for sharing it. We have about 10 minutes left. And so I want to uh, share with you the two big topics that, that I want to cover. Uh, and then that, that yeah. that you go off. So one is basically, put, uh, if you were running a, a media VC firm, or a VC firm focused on investing in the, media, the future of media, you can use that as broad as you want. I'm curious, where you would be excited by and um, what your request for startups w- would be. That's one angle. The second angle is I want to hear more about Lex. You, you launched it yeah. a, few, a few months ago. It, it blew up. We'll be launching this, uh, releasing this podcast after your, your big announcement. I want to hear more about where you're taking it and, and what people can can expect.
1: Right. So VC wise, there's stuff that's exciting to me in media and it just, I think it's cool. I think it's going to make the world better. I'm not, as convicted about it as like a VC bet. And so specifically putting on the VC hat, I think the most exciting opportunity now is in creation tools that incorporate AI in some way to, if you think about like, why do people create content of any form? It's because they have some goal, right? They have some end goal in mind. And the tools now feels like there's a lot of potential energy to help them get people at a higher probability of success towards their goal through assistance or augmentation from the from the AI. And I think it's just starting. It's obviously this is like the most hyped thing right now. It's like the most cliche thing to say. I also think it's real. For what it's worth, like I don't I don't jump on every bandwagon. It doesn't mean I'm right or wrong every time, but like I mostly have been distantly curious and intrigued by like web3. This I'm like this makes sense to me. I just, I feel the very real utility in, in my process as a writer, right? And it's just like the earliest, roughest form of using large language models to, to make my writing better. And I really think there's a lot of, this is obviously leading into Lex, but I think there's, there's a lot of sort of misconceptions about how generative AI can get used. I think right now we're at the phase where it's like, it's clear it's great as a way to learn information about the world. Because a lot of information has been encoded in these models. And so you can have a conversation on something like chat, chat dpt. And it's a great replacement for Googling something and clicking on links, right? Because you can ask questions and you can ask follow-up questions and all that kind of stuff. That's great. That's real. That, that's here to stay. But beyond that, I think people think like, oh, the generating of images or videos or text... It's all just kind of like mediocre, you know. Like uh, I saw this Paul Graham tweet today: when you're writing an essay, you should ask Chat GPT to write it, so you can know what the conventional thing is to say and not say it. And like he has a point, right? Like it's 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 true that if if a large language model can create like an essay or whatever, it is like literally the encoded conventional wisdom, and that's like probably not going to be that interesting. And it might be serviceable for some purpose, but it's not. It's you know, if your purpose is to like try and say something new, it's it, by definition, it's not going to do it, right? It's trained to say what people already said <laughs> in some sort of regurgitated way, and so. But I, but I think that's not really what it's about. Like, sure, some people are using it that for it now. I think what large language models or really any type of generative AI um, algorithm is about is it is a new type of tool. We used to have these sort of very direct manipulation tools where it's like, here's a pixel, and I can paint it a certain color, and then I just choose what what color all the pixels are going to be, and then I have a picture. And then we had tools like, well, what if you could like select a certain type of color and like crop that out so you can like remove the background or whatever, right? That didn't necessarily require AI, but it was like a more advanced level of tool, a more advanced level of manipulation. Similar thing with programming. Imagine if you stripped away all the like syntax highlighting or all the static analysis that you can do to predict like, hey, you're going to run into a bug here, even before the code technically runs and you have to like hit the error message when you're actually running the code. There's there's all sorts of tools that programmers are used to that allow them to create things at higher levels of complexity. And you can still dive down to the lower level when you need to, but it just, it gives you new capabilities and it sort of guides you towards things that might be more likely to succeed. And I just think it's a huge mistake to think of the only capability of it as like you ask it to do something at a super high level and it just does the whole thing for you in this kind of mediocre way. I just think that's, that's nowhere close to the most exciting use of, of this kind of technology. So basically that's what Lex is about. And that, that's the whole theme I think that I, that I would invest in if I was investing in media is investing in media creation technology, which is why I'm working on, on Lex is basically it's a AI powered word processor that unlike all the other AI word processors on the market, like believe that the most interesting use of it is to help you write better, to unlock your best writing rather than to do your writing for you in some really fast and cheap way, but kind of with a, conventional or mediocre output. And I think it's totally fine to help people like whatever, generate a first draft with the AI or or, or whatever else. But the kinds of stuff that I'm thinking is like to sort of replicate, I've been really fortunate to be able to work with some great editors and that has made my writing so much better in like a lasting way. And I think that of course, not all, but a lot, who knows how much of the sort of wisdom you'd get from, from an editor could be encoded into a language model and democratized basically so that anyone can have better feedback on their writing from an AI. Uh, So that's kind of like the direction Lex is headed. but, But really the goal is just to make everyone a better writer, right? If they want to be.
0: That, that's fascinating. Talk more about how people are, are, are using it today or, or writers are using it today or how you expect to, them to use it as as these models just get better and better. Like what is what is the future workflow going to look like for, for, for a writer that, that might be different than what it is today?
1: Yeah, totally. So people use it for a lot of things and that's a blessing and a, and a challenge. It's obviously, it's great that people are finding it useful for such a wide variety of types of writing. But my whole goal right now is to really understand where is it most effective and like focus pretty quickly. So some of the types of things people use it for writing academic papers, like not just students, like actual like PhDs who are like writing papers that they intend on publishing in prestigious journals. Or like they also, they write grant proposals, they write memos, right? Marketing is a huge use case, like writing a company newsletter or blog, writing to show up in search results. Another good use case that a lot of people use it for is like personal newsletter type stuff. Like if I have a sub stack that I just write every once in a while for fun, Lex is really helpful for that. There's, there, there's really a, a really wide variety of use cases. And to me, the key filter right now is sort of, um, it's mostly used by people who can just adopt a tool, right? So it's used by individuals or like smaller, newer companies, right? And then over time, we'd like for it to be useful in larger organizations potentially and to really power kind of like a lot of the knowledge of a company and to have that be accessible and have the AI help you get more value out of it more efficiently. But that's a little bit of a longer run thing and it's it's better to start with people who can adopt your tool today.
0: When you initially plugged it I think I got like thousands of, of likes and people wanting to use it. I'm excited to use it myself and also uh, see a number of other people adopt it. Uh, Justin Murphy just had this blog post about how writers should shouldn't feel threatened and in fact should feel inspired because differentiated writing, differentiated brand is going to be more more important than ever.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally, and I think I think it's clear that if the tool is crafted the right way, that AI can absolutely help people accomplish that, rather than just do all the work for them in this kind of like standard mediocre way. So yeah, that's that's the philosophy that I definitely share.
0: Awesome, uh, Nathan. That's a great place to wrap. This has been a great overview on all things media and also what you're up to with uh, with Every and, and Lex. Thanks so much for, for coming to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Turpentine is a network of podcasts, newsletters, and more covering tech business, and culture, all from the perspective of industry insiders and experts. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from AI with Cognitive Revolution to Econ 102 with Noah Smith. Our other shows drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, and investors, like Moment of Zen and my show Upstream. We're looking for industry-leading hosts and shows, along with sponsors. If you think that might be you or your company, email me at eric at turpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co.